Morning. So it's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and uh, Beth actually texted me this morning with a link, a little article that she read, and this is way better than the uh, introduction that I had planned, so I'm going to start with a story, okay? <clears throat> it's funny how ordinary your life can feel, even, if, even as it's changing forever. This is written by a lady named Emily Wieringa. It was a Saturday in winter, and we were downstairs by the crackle of a fire. We were sitting on the rug around a baby jumper. In it sat our youngest son, six months old, fat and happy. He leapt with his baby legs and drooling grin, our oldest stacking Duplo towers beside him. Outside, the Canadian snow fell slowly, and that's when our life changed forever with one phone call. The voice on the phone was plaintive and warbled like the sound of someone underwater. I can't do it anymore, she gasped. I can't be a mother anymore. I knew this voice because it sounded a lot like me on desperate days. I tried to calm my friend with empathy. I know, we've been there, or I've been there. It will pass, you can do it. No, she said, this was different, and she was scared. <clears throat> my, friend, who was, my friend was young and single, just exiting an abusive relationship and fending for two small boys with no home and no job. I'd met her through Young Life 10 years prior as a volunteer leading leader walking the halls of the local school. I glanced at her, this 12-year-old blonde with thick makeup, and she blurted out, do you want to go to coffee for, <laughs> do you want to go for coffee with me? And we've been going for coffee ever since. She'd always needed a mother, and now she was one two times over. And even as I tried to convince this drowning girl to swim, I knew God was asking me to drive to her. He was inviting me to bring those boys home. It was a choice. I could choose to ignore it. Life would go on, and it might even appear to go on quite well. Life with its wood stove and its jumping babies and its cozy parameters. And God would find someone else willing to say yes, someone else willing to help my friend. I never wanted to be a mother growing up. Being a mom meant spending yourself, always, on behalf of someone else. It meant sacrificing your body and giving up your time to wipe noses and play Scooby-Doo Band-Aids on knees. And now I was going to be a mom to four boys under the age of four. But perhaps like George Costanza of Seinfeld, the key to becoming the better version of oneself is doing the opposite of what one would normally do. I had been so focused on trying to feel loved that I'd forgotten to love. I thought the world owed me something. I was a good little girl who'd paid her dues and said her pleases and thank yous and been baptized at eight. Where was the reward? Where was the feel-good life? I'd spent my whole life flying my kite in the wrong skies. I was looking up when I should have been bowing down. I was striving to get instead of receive, to gain instead of give. I was seeking prosperity when I should have been relying on provision. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'd prayed it many times, and his will did come, not through any kind of feel-goodness, but through two little boys who needed a home for the next 10 months. I bought fuzzy blankets, and we made room for two more beds, and we talked with our 18-month-old and 6-month-old and tried to explain our family was going to double overnight, and we cried a lot. We'd done foster training, but had gotten pregnant with our first child before we fostered anyone. And now God had grown our hearts and given us a $600 Dodge caravan just in time to upset our simple, very wonderful life. I didn't have time to figure out the answers. People told us we were crazy. They said we weren't being good parents, that we were putting our kids at risk, and that made me weep. 
And then God reminded me of the shepherd who left 99 sheep to look for one. He reminded me of the woman who spent all day hunting for one lost coin. I can just hear her neighbors saying, time is money. But the shepherd cared enough. The woman did too. Above all, God reminded me that he gave his one and only son for a creation that didn't recognize him, that he'd sacrificed everything for people who couldn't even stay awake while he prayed, who denied him three times, who bartered for his clothes and made a mockery of his temple. In other words, for people like me. And instead of calling down angel armies and executing justice, he just hung there and died. From a purely human standpoint, it didn't make sense. And this didn't either. I began to understand in a small yet fresh way the beauty of the gospel. I began to feel joy, my kite soaring high in the skies of love. So we're going to talk about living out a pro-life ethic. And oftentimes the big question is, what do we do? And in some ways there are things that we can do that we need to do, but sometimes the best response is the kind of life lived tomorrow that will get you ready for that phone call so that you would respond to it the way God wants you to. So our text for this morning is Proverbs 24. If you want to start to turn there, we're, gonna, we're not going to get there right away, so you might want to just um, stick your finger in there and um, hold off. But the outline's in the bulletin. You'll see it up here on the screen. But we're going to begin first with the violence to the image of God that's all around us, that's been perpetrated by us, um, that we swim in in our world today. So we as human beings are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man, mankind, in our image after our likeness. We as human beings are God's supreme creation, the crown jewel of his creation. That is how valuable human life is to God. He chose for us to be his image bearers, his representatives. That has profound implications, stretching in all kinds of directions, and we're going to consider a few this morning. But at this point, we need to realize that that very fact that we are image bearers of God's glory, reflectors of his glory, means that we have been the target of God's en enemy from day one. So in Genesis 3, the serpent comes to the woman, you won't surely die. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so their violence to the image of God took place. Why did Satan want to do that? Well, because he hated God. And so he hates that which is made in God's image. If he can't kill God and usurp his throne, he'll do the next best thing. He'll seek to kill the image. 
He'll attack the image. So attacking humans made in his image is an attempt for Satan to treat us like voodoo dolls. Stick the pins in to get at the person that that little doll represents. You know what I'm talking about? It's an attempt to kill God in effigy. So who do you think it was that inspired the first murder in Genesis 4, the very next chapter? Cain and Abel. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Bring the right sacrifice. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door like a tiger. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain didn't listen. Instead, he goes and speaks to his brother. They go out to the field. He rises up and he kills his brother. Jesus said in John 8 to the religious leaders at the time, you are of your father the devil. They were wanting to kill him. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. So let's not hold this out at arm's length. We need to be honest with ourselves here. We're all murderers, inspired by the arch murderer. Matthew 5, Jesus said it. You've heard that it's said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anybody guiltless? Or how about James 3? No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of of God, the likeness of God. The very next chapter in James, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? When those break out, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Do you know how many times you've committed murder in your lifetime, according to Jesus' definition? Do you know how many times you committed it before age five? (laughs) Have you ever hung out with a little child? Like how many times if Ben was big enough, I'd be dead. And I did the same thing. Attacking the image of God did violence to the image of God. So Satan's attack on the image of God did violence to the image of God, that image was shattered, and now we, still in the image of God, but twisted, distorted, now do violence to the image of God, to one another. Attacking the image of God, did violence to the image of God, and we now do violence to the image of God. So much violence to the image. Inspired by the hater of the image of God, the one who loves to devalue life made in God's image. So today, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, it is not merely about being anti-abortion. Okay, so being pro-life is about being for unborn babies, yes, and most of the application of this message will be aimed in that direction, but it is so much broader than that. This is a value of human life issue. So it's actually about how we treat the elderly and the invalid and the disabled. It's about euthanasia. It's about genocide and ethnic cleansing. 
It's about prejudice of all varieties. It's about how we treat those of other races. It's about how we feel about how those of other races are being treated. Those are image of God issues. Which is why it's not surprising that Ronald Reagan connected abortion and racism when he proclaimed this as National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday back in 1984. So let me just read from that proclamation. The values and freedoms we cherish as Americans rest on our fundamental commitment to the sanctity of human life. The first of the unalienable rights affirmed by our Declaration of Independence is the right to life itself. A right the Declaration states has been endowed by our Creator on all human beings, whether young or old, weak or strong, healthy or handicapped. Since 1973, and remember he's writing in 1984, so that's only 11 years. Since 1973, however, more than 15 million unborn children have died in legalized abortions, a tragedy of stunning dimensions that stands in sad contrast to our belief that each life is sacred. These children have been denied the first and most basic of human rights, and we are infinitely poor for their loss. We are poor not simply for lives not led and for contributions not made, but also for the erosion of our sense of the worth and dignity of every individual. To diminish the value of one category of human life is to diminish us all. Slavery, which treated blacks as something less than human to be bought and sold if convenient, cheapened human life and mocked our dedication to the freedom and equality of all men and women. Can we say that abortion, which treats the unborn as something less than human, to be destroyed if convenient, will be less corrosive to the values we hold dear? I won't go into it, but Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, was a racist. You can read sanitized versions of her life. And, and I listened to an NPR interview recently, and let's just praise Margaret Sanger and cut out all the eugenics. This isn't just she grew up in the South. This was eugenics. Improve the human race by, I mean, this, just one quote. Um, <clears throat> she wrote this. Uh, irresponsible and reckless people whose religious scruples prevent their exercising control over their numbers, there is no doubt in the minds of all thinking people that the procreation of this group should be stopped. So it was racist. It was also aimed at feeble-minded, and it's just it's ugly, ugly stuff. So both abortion and racism are matters of treating God's creation in his image with contempt. So we, by our choice to eat the fruit, did violence to the image of God, like shattering the mirror that's intended to reflect God's glory. And that shattering turned us into selfish, murderous people. We turn in on ourselves who introduced death into God's good, good, very good creation. So what did God do to us cosmic vandals? How did he respond? Well, second point, the image and the intervention of God. So image shattered, we did the shattering, the wages of our sin is death, God warned us, eternal death, that's what we deserve. We deserve for our murderous heart, our murderous words, our murderous actions, we murderers deserve to die. Thou shalt not murder. We've cursed his image, we deserve to be cursed, but God, but 
God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he wanted us to know it. To really know what he's like. So he sent his son the image of the invisible God, capital I. Colossians 1. To fully reveal his mighty, loving, merciful heart. Okay, so in, in coming, Satan actually tried to kill that image bearer. Remember? The perfect image bearer. Who do you think was behind Herod's slaughter of the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions two years old and younger? But Satan couldn't kill him. He may have thought that he succeeded when Jesus hung on the cross, but I actually think he knew that he was conquered. I think he knew that Jesus stomped on his head and defanged him at the cross. And I think that's why he rages, because the death of Jesus was to give forgiveness and cleansing and life to murderers like you and me. I mean, just think about it. Think about the hall of faith, you know, Hebrews 11. Just think about the people that have gone before. Moses was a murderer. He led God's people out. David was a murderer. Remember Uriah? How about the Apostle Paul? Listen, listen to, in fact, flip to 1 Timothy 1, just so that you see this. And this is why I'm starting here, because we need to put the, the text in Proverbs 24 in the context of God's dealings with us. We need to know who we are before we seek to love well those around us. So Paul was a murderer as well. He sought to murder Christians. He stood there and approved of Stephen's martyrdom. And look how he talks about how God dealt with him and why. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, murderous sinners just like him, of whom I am the foremost but I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, based on that text alone, wouldn't you expect that God plans to, to save and pour out mercy on abortion doctors? And he has. I mean, have you read the stories of people that, a woman that starts a clinic and is so involved in, in actually promoting abortion and then she gets converted and the Lord uses her tremendously in the other direction? Well, we would expect that. And so if you meet someone who's had an abortion, how are you going to speak to them? How are you going to relate to them? Well, from one murder to another, I got some good news. So you and I, we all stand on level ground, including any of us in this room who have had an abortion. And maybe you've never shared it with anyone because of the shame, and maybe you haven't been able to forgive yourself. You need to hear this good news. Or maybe you encouraged an abortion. Maybe you paid for it as a boyfriend or a parent. 
We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. We all deserve the wages of our sins. Satan wants us to die. He wants us to go down with him. He wants to bring as many as possible into the abyss. But Jesus intervened. He rescued us from perishing. He held us back from slipping into hell. And that's why we can hear the call of our text this morning in Proverbs 24 and obey. So if you're not there already, turn to Proverbs 24, and we're going to, look at, we're going to look at three verses there. It's the image of God, Jesus himself, and the intervention of God at the cross that empowers obedience to this text in Proverbs 24. <clears throat> you can find it on page, whoop, what page is it? It's 546 if you're using the Pew Bible. So this is what wisdom says to us this morning, God's wisdom. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So big picture is the call to action is clear in verse 11. Do you see that? Two imperatives. Rescue, hold back. And then there's excuses that we give. And they're called out in verses 10 and 12. And so we're going to start with the excuses. And then we'll move to the call to action in verse 11. Okay? So the first Excuse, weakness, but it's weakness with a question mark. Okay, verse 10 again. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. What's, what's, what's being said here? Well, the point is if your courage fails in the face of adversity, your creed is not really a conviction. So if, if we give way to cowardice or fear or indifference, then our commitment's not really commitment. That's the point of of this wise word here. So indirectly then, this is a call for persevering, resolute courage, even in the face of heat and trial. So what does that mean for us in the cause of life in America? Well, I think for one, in the church, it means that we don't give way to fetal fatigue. Have you ever heard that phrase? I think it's a helpful phrase. How many people have felt this? We're just not getting anywhere on this issue. There are so many other issues that are pressing. We should focus elsewhere. Now, I'm not denying that there aren't other important issues. And we can't all respond to all of the issues with equal energy and time. We're all just limited and human. Human means limited. Okay. But we can't be indifferent and tired of this battle. I don't have time. So just think about what happens in our minds and in our hearts. You know, the polarization in our political system is just so ridiculous. The secular narrative just, it's so easy to just put your tail between your legs and go silent. Because as soon as you actually stand up for life, let's say it could be as mundane as a conversation at, at work. 
You are just going to be labeled and, you know, there's all this baggage that's going to come along with it and you might just shrug your shoulders and say, that's just not worth it. No, this is worth it. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So let's not get fatalistic about abortion in America. Actually, there are some encouraging signs. There are actually more, at least by, I, I'm not sure when this thing it was, maybe, maybe it's a year old, but there are more crisis pregnancy centers than abortion clinics in the United States. That's encouraging. Okay? But there's certainly plenty of discouraging things. How about this? Did you watch any of those Planned Parenthood videos? Now, many of you did, I'm sure. But I wonder, if you didn't, I wonder why. Or maybe if you watched one and then... And there can be lots of different reasons, but I wonder if we don't want to be bothered with the kind of weight of responsibility, in a sense, that watching those puts on us. What if America responded to shootings like this? We're not getting anywhere on this one. Come on, this is inevitable. There's so many other pressing issues. I mean, the stock market plunged on Friday, and we're, we might be on the precipice of global recession. Listen, folks, imagine if there was a place, if there were places throughout the United States where pregnant women were given a mind-altering drug and their babies were vacuumed out of their wombs, and, and it was happening to almost a million women throughout the United States each year. Imagine if that was happening. And we just were like, come on, there's other stuff we need to get to here. Well, the secular narrative and the value system that we're just drinking in is that mind-altering drug that makes this insanity normal. So we can't turn a blind eye Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament commentator, says, God will not excuse him for his lack of gritty determination, mental toughness, and moral courage to do the right thing. So maybe what we need to do first is confess and repent of our indifference. I know I have to do that. I have before. I, even just this week of focus here brings me back to the same place. Indifference to the tragedy of abortion, especially at this just mind, mind-boggling scale. Indifference is evil. Jesus died, actually, for our indifference to horrors like this. So God warns us here of getting lax and indifferent, and he also then warns us on the other bookend of this section of claiming ignorance. So look down, point number four, at verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does, he, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? So, obviously the way that the verse ends shows you that that claim to ignorance is a false one, okay? But, but think about how our minds, our hearts work. Oftentimes, we try to talk ourselves out of responsibility by trying to pull the wool over our own eyes. You know, hear no evil, see no evil. So there, there's always excuses to be found if you're looking for them. And we know it's ugly in others. We see it. We, we see it in children. We see it with a criminal. Look, I was just... 
or a politician, we see it really clearly, the excuses. And we often try to claim ignorance to avoid responsibility, to avoid culpability, but God knows our hearts. And so there's a sober word here at the end of verse 12, and he and will he not repay man according to his work? Now, we have sinful hearts. We're going to have to fight them. We're going to make selfish choices, but we dare not allow those seeds of selfishness to take root without good gardening on a regular basis. We need to keep digging those out so that they don't grow and take over. Otherwise, we may come to the end of our lives and hear Matthew 25, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, what? see these were church going people. Lord, when do we see you? The whole list. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So I say that to just echo the warning here because we need to hear the warning because none of us need to claim ignorance. That would be a dangerous trajectory. Hopefully none of us in this room are going to hear that word from Jesus. So this warning is a good thing to make sure we're on the path of intervention and action like we're called to. So none of us should be ignorant. I mean, the facts are everywhere. Do you know this? By week eight, a baby has all organs present, heart beating, fingerprint, fingerprints, grasps with fingers, sucks thumb, recoils from the pain of pricking. There's brain functioning. Brain waves can, brain waves can be detected carries all the genetic completeness of a human, eight weeks. And most abortions in America take place after eight weeks. In 38 states, not Delaware, you could be pregnant, driving to an abortion clinic to have an abortion, and a drunk driver hits you, and the baby dies, and that driver is prosecuted and ends up in jail for involuntary manslaughter. What is the difference between the abortion doctor killing the baby and the drunk driver? The will of the mother. If she wants it to be a baby, it's a baby. If she doesn't want it to be a baby, it's tissue. And the contents of her uterus can be empty. That's how they describe it on Planned Parenthood's site. Now, why does Delaware not have those laws and 11 other states? Because this is a slippery slope. Oh, it's a slippery slope to limit a woman's right to choose an abortion. Well, why are we so opposed to the government limiting our right to choose? Now, yeah, that could sound like a weird question. What I'm saying is it's not totally abnormal that the government does this. And, and in some cases it would be crazy, but in many cases it's, it, it's, it's obvious. So, for instance, prostitution is illegal. <laughs> well, that's the government telling someone what they can and can't do with their body. Putting heroin in your body is illegal. That's the government telling you what you can and can't do with your body. You can't streak <laughs> through a public place. Okay? That's the government telling you what you can and can't do with your body. I 
I think I'm going to skip a few things here. <laughs> the point of all this is that this isn't really an ignorance issue. Which kind of unmasks, I mean, that's the whole point of that statement in verse 12, is it unmasks the fact that this isn't real ignorance. This isn't a science issue. It's not a logic issue. It's a God complex issue. It's a, I want to determine for myself what's right and wrong in this realm issue. And God knows and weighs the heart. We just, we can't run and hide on this one. We need to, as the church, be willing to call murder, murder. We need to unashamedly be prophetic to our generation. And in being prophetic, we dare not be shrill or self-righteous. Again, back to the gospel. You know, mercy for us murderers. We need to radiate and represent the mercy of God. We need to be winsomely loving to our generation. We need to do something. So let's look at the intervention, verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So this is obviously stated very generally. It could apply in a number of scenarios. Murder in the street. Jews being set up to be slaughtered in Persia. Queen Esther heard the call of this text. And it's worth thinking about that we could sympathize with her hesitancy to act. Couldn't you? But aren't you glad she acted? It could apply to captives taken in war. It could apply to Jews being carted away to concentration camps. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer heard this call and followed. Corey Ten Boom did as well. It could apply to black Africans being kidnapped from their homes and traded like cattle. William Wilberforce, God bless him, followed the call of this text. Black folks being treated like property or being lynched in this country. Martin Luther King Jr. followed the call of this text. Young girls enslaved in cult prostitution in India. Amy Carmichael heard the call of this text. Babies being left to die in South Korea. Have you watched that Dropbox movie? Pastor Lee Jong-rak followed the call of this text when he created that box. So what is it in our day? What is it in our generation? What is it for us? At least we should be praying so that we're ready when that phone call comes. So remember the intervention of God by the image of God, and we lay down our lives because Jesus laid down his for us. We love because he first loved us. We can love murderers because we murderers have been loved and forgiven. So weakness isn't a good excuse. Anyone can be for something when it's easy. Ignorance is not a good excuse. Rescue is the right response. Um, Derek Kidner commented on the Psalms. He says, exceptional strain, verse 10, and avoiding responsibility, verse 12, are fair tests, not unfair, of a man's mettle. It is the hireling, not the true shepherd, who will plead bad conditions, hopeless tasks, and pardonable ignorance. Love is not so lightly quieted, nor is the love of God. So what does this intervention look like? I want us to think about it this way. Pro-life and pro-love, last point. So based on the image of God, Jesus, and the intervention of God, the cross, we are remade, the image of God, new creations in Christ, so that we can intervene and rescue. We are 
pro-life in all of its broad applications. So life matters. We have to stand against everything in our culture that devalues human life and puts it on the cheap, whether race-related or unborn or elderly, elderly or handicapped. It all comes back to the image of God. So there's application for foster care, adoption, or maybe supporting someone who's in process to adopt. I love that this orientation is, is growing in our <clears throat> church family. There's application for receiving any children that God gives us, especially those with special needs. But let me just give a few kind of points of application um, to consider here. To intervene, not pretend to be ignorant, not to sit by in indifference. So first off is prayer. It's a very real application. Oftentimes people say, we can't just pray, which, okay, you're right, we shouldn't just pray. But we can't do, <laughs> we can't skip prayer. Like if you think about the insanity of of this being normal in our culture, do you think you can just reason people out of that insanity? We need God to change minds and hearts. So prayer, don't downplay this action, whether it's for abortion doctors being converted. I know Sue Hughes is faithfully praying for that. Shutting down of clinics, hearts being turned, political landscape changing, praying for door of hope, praying that, well, actually, I'll, I'll wait on that one. It's, it's near the end. Speaking of Door of Hope, there's a great list that they provide of ways to support their ministry. And looking over this, I love it because this is like, it doesn't matter what your gift, giftedness is, you could help them. So organize baby showers at your church. That's awesome. I didn't know you could do that. Maybe we should do that. Cleaning. I can't really count, so I don't know. Okay, you could clean, right? There is counseling. You could decorate for their banquet or other special events. You could do food for the same. Write grants. Anybody that can do that. Fundraising. Internet stuff. You're like a tech person. No, you could get involved in being pro-life by using your code writing skills or whatever. Maintenance. Carpentry, etc. Marketing. Newsletter writing articles. Receptionist fill-in. A lot of practical ways to help. But one of the main things I think we need to do in response is to see the connection between pro-life and pro-love. Okay, so Jesus, when he was asked the most important commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How, how's this going to happen? How are we going to see, how are we going to have opportunities when there's a girl that's scared and doesn't know where to turn, that she would turn to you? How's that going to happen? You can't just check off the box what well, I need to do, A, B, C. We need to be loving people. Like you and I, we ought to be seeking to be the most loving person in our office, in our neighborhood, in our extended family. And I think a lot of the opportunities are going to come from being pro-love so at work, praying for and being sincerely interested in the well-being of your coworkers. Generally. And you know what? You're going to ask probably for the thousandth time, hey, how you doing? Or you're going to see that something's not right and you're going to ask, are you okay? And she's going to fall apart. So do you see how that's 
living a life of love that's going to open up the opportunity to be profoundly engaged, to rescue. So it means taking every opportunity to treat all people equally with dignity and respect and love, taking opportunities to build bridges, small faithfulness. I remember hearing Thabiti Anyabwile talk about how it struck him. He must have been in his late 30s or mid, I think it's late 30s, 30s, mid 30s, when a white person opened the door for him. It was the first time it had ever happened. Broke my heart. That's such ordinary mundane faithfulness, but if we are the loving people that God calls us to be, that kind of ordinary faithfulness is going to open doors, and it's going to open doors. There are so many times that we decide in favor of our comfort zone, and that's the opposite of love. So, I want to I kind of end by talking about and giving a word to us as a church family about the culture that we need to cultivate here. So first, a word to teenagers, college-aged kids, maybe older as well. But listen, any of you young girls and, and any of you guys as well, younger, if you make a big mistake and you find out you're pregnant, please do not let fear keep you from coming to your family here. And from keeping that child. And I want you to hear young woman or man that would be afraid of what would happen. I want you to hear what I'm going to say to us as a church now. And us as a church, we all need to hear this and respond. So by way of a story, back at the church that we came from in Chicago, there was a situation where wonderful family, one of their daughters, got pregnant out of wedlock. And it was a beautiful response how she just was repentant. And so there, were, there was question about how we were going to communicate some of this because obviously it's going to show. And, you know, I can't get into all the details of it. But as we went along, we got a few emails that made my blood boil, okay? Like, we're going to throw a baby shower? What's that going to say to my daughter? And I'll tell you what, took everything in me not to just, like, blow up. Push back on throwing a shirt. Are you kidding me? Are, are you kidding me? Let's just get a few things right. Premarital sex is wrong, okay? That's God's idea, not mine. It's not the church's. If something is wrong, it's a sin. It, doesn't, it, it means it's in your best interest. Remember the verse, for your good? Because God's commands are always for our good. So we're not going to compromise on that. Just saying. Nobody needs to be confused about what's being said if we throw a baby shower for somebody that has a baby out of wedlock. We're not condoning premarital sex and all of a sudden changing what we believe. Absolutely not. No, what we'll be saying is not just 
that this precious girl needs to repent and receive the Lord's forgiveness, which we want her to know that she can be forgiven of this, and it doesn't mean her life is over, but we'll also be saying, you know what? We want to throw you a shower. We want to buy you diapers. We want to help you get a job. We want to help watch your baby. We want to buy her some baby formula. We want to have you over for dinner. We want to help you because we want to say this is what love looks like in the church in response to these things. There is forgiveness. So whether you have a baby out of wedlock or you had an abortion, there is forgiveness and cleansing and a future and hope, and you're, you're in the right place. We're going to love you. So Matt Chandler tells the following story. I'll close with this, and then we're going to sing a song that is very appropriate for us in response. So he was preaching on these themes and encouraging people to get involved, get in the game. And he stepped off the stage after preaching, and a young woman named Sarah greeted him. She had tags on, so I knew she had kids in the nursery. Then she was also pregnant, the kind of pregnant where I wasn't guessing. (laughs) Um, And he still waited for her to bring it up wisely. She said, hey, my name is Sarah. I don't know when I'll get to see you again. I just want to tell you my story while you're here. Sarah tells me this story. One of these girls who lives with her shared the other half of it. Okay, so he got the full picture, um, having heard it from both sides. Sarah has a sister who lives with these other young women in a house in Denton, women that went to the village church. Sarah had a drug issue, and she was stripping. She had had her kids taken away from her and finally got evicted from her house. These young women in Denton who had been praying for her simply let her move in with them and then brought her to the village. She said her first weekend at the village up in Denton, God was here. God was here, exclamation point. And here she is. She's evicted from her house. She's living with these young women, doesn't see any real hope on the horizon, knows she's now pregnant, and so she's headed to the abortion clinic. And the young women who live with her just kind of pulled her and said, don't do this. There are other ways. We can figure it out. And she was like, it's <laughs> the way Matt, Matthew talks, it's a transcript, so um, it's great. You should listen to his preaching. She was like, I'm going. She gets in the car. The women she was living with just began to pray for her. She went to the abortion clinic and a couple hours later came home. She pulled some of the girls in and just said, well, it looks like this baby is living. God was at the abortion clinic. Now these women have rallied around Sarah, loved her, encouraged her, been there for her. A covenant member family at the Flower Mound campus is adopting the baby Sarah is carrying. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you proved it to the utmost in sending Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you hung on the cross for us murderers. Fill us with your love and give us lots of opportunities to pour it out and rescue In Jesus' name, amen.